Hello, and welcome to Good People to Know, a down-to-earth podcast brought to you by WFI Insurance. We round up experts, specialists and people in the know from around Australia and talk to them about the things that matter most to regional Australians. In our last season, we spoke at length about the increasing frequency and severity of weather events due to climate change, and it's a topic that regularly comes up when talking to our farming communities. With natural disasters impacting more regional Australians than ever before, today I shake hands with Elle Carter, National Emergency Response Lead with Australian Red Cross. We discuss her experience and how regional communities can better prepare for future weather events. With over 17 years at Australian Red Cross leading their response to some of the nation's biggest disasters, Elle truly is a good person to know. Okay, Elle, before we begin, you've had a long and distinguished career in the field of emergency management and you've been on the scene at some of Australia's biggest disasters. Can you give us a brief flyby of your career? Thanks, Andrew. I'm currently working with Red Cross as the National Emergency Services Response Lead, uh, which basically means that I'm responsible for coordinating how Red Cross will respond in a disaster and making sure that we're operationally ready to respond. I have been working with them, Australian Red Cross, and in emergency management since 2006, uh, with a lot of that time spent uh, working in Queensland, regional Queensland, Northern Territory, etc. So some of my earliest deployments with Red Cross were to Western Queensland, supporting towns like Charleville, Roma and St. George when they were impacted by, you know, pretty major flooding. My role would be to establish our Red Cross operations, manage and operate evac centres and liaise with agency and community stakeholders. Um, With Red Cross, my areas of specialism are incident management and emergency sheltering, which is really just an umbrella term for evacuation management, which means that I help lead some of the Red Cross work in the development and application of that evac practice. And I guess some of the events that we've responded to have been quite large-scale evacuation emergencies, like during Cyclone Yazi, 2011 of floods, recent floods, things like Cyclone Marsha, Black Summer bushfires, and of course some of the regular flooding that happens in communities in the Northern Territory, like in the Daly River community, etc. That's a pretty big territory in itself, Queensland through the Northern Territory. Yep. So uh, yeah, there's certainly you've named a few events, and there's certainly been a few as well. So. In that time, is there is there any moment that stays with you that really epitomises what you do do? Well, I think, Andrew, I've got quite a few moments that stay with me. Um, but the one that's definitely made the most impact was actually during a flood event in 2019. Um, so I was with a team at an EVAC centre that was pretty much full to overflowing with people who'd been pulled out of pretty rapidly rising floodwaters. And one of the days when I was there, I walked outside the back door of the EVAC centre And I saw this lady crouched down and she had a baby strapped to her back and she was actually washing the baby's feeding bowl and bottle in a muddy puddle out the back of the centre, which totally stopped me in my tracks. I thought, why is this evening happening? You know, we're in Australia. And I found out through some creative communication that she was a new arrival to Australia, had no idea um, what supports and helps were available to her, didn't speak a word of English, so communication for her uh, was a challenge. So what we needed to do, I guess, with this lady is, number one, just to understand that even though she was surrounded by hundreds of people, she was actually completely isolated and alone in her own experience because she couldn't communicate and she actually didn't feel safe asking for help. So I think for me, that experience really helped me realise that we simply can't make assumptions that just because help is available, that people can or will actually access that help. And just because there's loads of people around you doesn't mean that we're actually not still alone and within that experience. Yeah, so impacted by the events and then further further isolated by language. And, and with your experience in community evacuation, how can communities be prepared for, for when that moment comes? Is there work that they can do you know, as, as preparation? 
Yeah, there's a huge amount of work that we can all do. And I think the first piece is around awareness. So for people in communities, and look, that includes not only residents, but the workers and visitors to those communities as well, needing to really understand what the local hazards and risks are. So, you know, is it flood, is it fire, isolation, or something completely different? And once we know what those possible hazards are, then figuring out what the impact's going to be, like on me, my family, my business, my community, and deciding what to do about it. So most importantly is, number one, having a plan. You know, know what to do the moment comes that you might need to evacuate. So can you go stay with family and friends? Can you go stay with neighbours? Or can you afford to put yourself and your family up, like in commercial accommodation for a couple of days? But if none of those options are available to you, it's things like moving across to an established evacuation centre if there is one in your community, where you're likely to meet some of our Red Cross teams and other community volunteers who come forward to assist. But I think it's also important for people to know that evac centres, they're not purpose-built locations. They're actually just normal buildings, halls, sports centres, places that are available locally and have hopefully been identified in a local evacuation plan. So evac centres, they're normally just set up to address things like the basic human needs. So immediate shelter, water, food, information, support. And like sometimes literally when people walk in there, there's no furnishings. It's just an open hall. So you really do need to plan ahead and think about the type of things you might need to take with you to keep yourself, your family safe, healthy, comfortable for at least a couple of days. You know, think of um, heading out and going to unpaired camping. What's all the stuff you'd have to take with you in that environment? And you roughly need similar items when you go to an evac centre. I know like when I travel with my own kids, there was so much I had to think about. So things like nappies, wipes, bottles, baby food, feeding implements, and of course all the toys that they want to take with them because they're quite special to them. So it's everything in the kitchen sink sometimes. So you really do need to plan ahead and map that plan out um, with your family and with your friends as well. Yeah, so there's probably almost a couple of levels there. There's probably the broader community response from local government or the council, whoever, but there also is your own personal plan, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And the personal plan is where it starts. Because if you haven't taken that time to think about, you know, what do you have available to you right now in your own home? Do you have enough stuff to be able to pack in a kit and take with you? Simple things like enough medications, charger for your phone, batteries for your torch. You know, how many of us have spare batteries lying around? You know, you go look for a battery and you can never find one when you actually need it. But then thinking about the other things that without them, your life would be really, really challenging. So stuff like your identification, Um, If you've got to prove who you are after an event and you've lost your home and everything in it, that's going to be a bit of a challenge for you. Access to emergency finances. So do you have cash available if you can't get to a cash machine? Um, Do you have credit on your phone and fuel in the tank of your car? Um, So there's loads of steps individually we need to take. But the other part of that is also around um, what else is special to our family. So things like pets. Um, they're an important part of many people's families. So are you going to evacuate it without your pet or is that pet coming with you? And if it is, then how are you actually going to take care of that pet if you end up in the likes of an evac centre? So, so many steps, but we do encourage people. There's plenty of resources out there. For example, with Red Cross, in partnership with IAG, we actually have this really good app called Get Prepared. And the Get Prepared app allows you to step through developing a plan for yourself and your family. But it also allows you to capture key contacts so who you might need to call in an emergency like not just your triple zeros but you know is it your local doctor is it your local bank is it your friend or your neighbor i was actually in a situation last week where my phone died 
like literally would not turn on completely blank and I had no phone for three days. I never realized how dependent I was on my phone till I didn't have it. I couldn't even remember phone numbers, you know, from my family members. The only two numbers I could remember was my own number and triple zero, which didn't get me very far last week when I really needed it. So again, think in emergency, how are you going to be able to capture that information if it's not at your fingertips? Which is also at a time when clearly uh, there's a, a lot of stress and emotion as well. So there's uh, other things going on, you know, that, that's impacting you as well. And, and interestingly, too, over the last couple of years, I guess we've seen, you know, unfortunately, a number of events where whole communities have been cut off. I guess that presents additional challenges. Yeah, it certainly does. And it is something that we do see quite frequently um, in Australia. You know, we're a very large, spread out area with many regional remote communities. And it only takes a little bit of flood water sometimes to actually cut those communities off and sometimes can be for quite protracted periods of time. But I think the first thing for communities is understanding their strengths as a community. So what do we know? What do we have? What can we do that can help us through the situation? People in regional and remote areas, they tend to be really good at looking after themselves and each other. They're pretty resourceful and creative and literally can make something out of nothing. But the ideal scenario um, is to already have a local plan that details this exact situation. And in fairness, you know, there's a lot of councils around the country that have good plans in place. But as individuals and communities, it's actually our responsibility to know the plan and understand what part we actually play within that plan. There's probably a number of regional communities that I've worked with over the years um, who've got plans in place around pre-positioning important resources on either side of the river when they know that the community is going to get cut off um, by floods. So things like pre-positioning, like an emergency kit, food, medical supplies, even plans around relocating cattle and other livestock, having kids go stay with a family member so they can still continue to go to school or engage in other sporting or activities that they would see as important to them. Um, but, you know, if your community is going to be isolated for long periods of time, you do have an individual responsibility to make sure you've got enough food and fuel and supplies to keep you going and then understand what the arrangements are that if those supplies run out or an accident happens, who is it that you can call and how will help actually get to you if you are completely isolated? Great advice. Now, in our first season of, of Good People to Know, we spoke with IAG's meteorologist, Bruce Buckley, about the increasing frequency and severity of natural disasters due to climate change and the like. Over the course of your career, are you, seeing, are you getting caught on more and more? Are you seeing a change? Definitely seeing a change in the frequency. When I started working with Red Cross back in 2006, we might have only seen maybe one or two significant events in the course of a year. Um, but now we seem to have teams responding every single month of the year right across Australia. And in fact, we actually still have multiple teams on the ground um, helping communities recover from the bushfires still and also from flooding that has happened more recently and a little while ago as well. So in this last calendar year, we've actually had, or sorry, the last year, we've had 42 disaster events that our teams have responded to. So that's really pretty significant. And they've not been a drop in the ocean. They've been really big, impactful events that have caused a lot of stress and heartache um, for many, many communities. Um, it was interesting, actually, on the radio this morning, they were talking about how nearly half the people um, in New South Wales whose homes were damaged or destroyed by the recent floods are actually still homeless. You know, so the impacts of these large-scale events are, are really quite far-reaching. How, how do you go with that? Is that really stretching the resources? Is that a challenge for, for Red Cross? 
it's a challenge for Red Cross and every single organization and community group. But I think it's a challenge for individuals as well. You know, when you've got to spread your resources so thinly across multiple events, you got to do the best you can do with the resources that you have. And plans will get you so far. But when you have the big one and you've got multiple communities all impacted at the same time, that's when you have to start looking at priorities and thinking, you know, where is it really, really, really urgent that we send our people and where can we provide that remote support or where can we kind of empower and work with others to be able to respond in their community? So you've got to get quite creative about responding and moving forward, you know, that's going to be the way to go here in Australia because there will be more disasters and we've got to be ready for them. Is there a different response between regional and, and metropolitan regions? I definitely think so. With metropolitan regions, they tend to have a lot of resources to hand. They will have shops and warehouses and plenty of supplies ready and available to them. They often have multiple agencies and service entities that are available at that kind of local and wider community level that they can draw on. And you'll also see probably a concentration of emergency services agencies, you know, in in those uh, metropolitan areas. Um, But when you more get out to regional and remote communities, they're very, very thin on the ground resource wise. You know, sometimes they're literally living on a shoestring where the services that come into community, they're visiting services. You know, they might drop in once a week or once every couple of weeks. Um, There might be very few buildings and infrastructure that can actually be used to support those communities. So the difference can be quite great. But I do think, you know, there's great strength in a lot of our regional and remote communities because it's it's about that sense of community, isn't it? Where they know each other, they're connected, they are resourceful, they are resilient, but they still have to have practical plans in place for when the inevitable comes and they are cut off and isolated and have to be able to then respond for themselves. So, yeah, there's probably a few aspects of that we need to think about, isn't there? There is, yeah. The coordination in, in an event between your services, emergency services, the like does, does that work well? Is is there's the lines of communication sound? I guess we we unfortunately we've had a lot of events recently to to to, to well, we've had to had to work through that. But how, how does things work when when something happens with emergency services with Red Cross and other organisations? Australia is lucky in the sense that we actually have quite robust emergency management plans around the country. You know, at that federal, state, local, and community level. But again, it's about how people engage with those plans and how those plans stand up when they're tested in a real situation. And, you know, sometimes the plans will work and it will be perfect because we'll have enough people, we'll have enough resources and everyone is available who you need to be available. But then if you have like what we've seen over the last year with multiple disasters in multiple communities, there's always going to be challenges in mobilizing those responses. And there's never going to be enough people. Even look at the complexities of COVID. Like how many people did we have unavailable, you know, in our own kind of workplaces and businesses because they were sick or they were in isolation or they were caring for family members or having to quarantine? That already depleted many people's resources quite significantly across business and the emergency management sector. Um, So we do have to be cognizant of that. But I do think it brings to light the whole conversation piece around um, communities being able to help themselves. So what plans and preparedness steps can we put in place so that communities are trained and ready and able to respond when the need is great? but the assistance can't get to them in a hurry for whatever reason. Maybe it's geographic isolation. Maybe it's they're cut off by flood water or cut off by a fire front. Or maybe it's that our formal resources are simply stretched to the max and there's not enough people to go around. 
But just just on that point, are you seeing there is more now preparedness within communities, within local local government and the like, recognising that you know you can't just hope; you've actually got to have a plan. I think it's been an awakening. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. I think people already knew the importance of having a plan, but knowing it and actually having one or two different things, and then, as I said, it's it's how good that plan is on the day when when you try to apply it. What we have seen is some really great initiatives in local communities where people have come forward to help out, where they've used their own skills, information and resources to be able to chip in and contribute to that response to the floods or fires or whatever the event actually was. And it's fantastic to just see that kind of organic mobilization of a wider community to just come out and help because they know it's actually the right thing to do. Some of those community groups and people who stood up you know, during the floods and helped out at times in need. Some of those now are actually formally linked back in um, to the organised emergency management arrangements and they're actually now recognised and being written into some of those local plans. So that's really fantastic to see. There's other communities, though, who've taken great responsibility on themselves to actually create community-based initiatives that will be sustainable over the long term. And one or two of the ones that come to mind is in Redlands, so the Southern Morton Bay Islands. Um, The islands, they're always isolated because they're islands. And if an emergency happens, it can be really hard for help to get there, even though they're quite close to the mainland. So in Redlands, they set up a program called Community Champions. And the Community Champions was basically local people living on the island who just wanted to help if their community was in trouble. So what the council did is they brought a couple of agencies, including Red Cross, um, to the table. We created a bit of a training program for them and trained up all of these community volunteers in things like understanding what emergency management and recovery is, understanding um, how to establish and operate an evacuation center, things like psychological first aid and leadership. So the basic skills that people would need to be able to look after themselves if there was that kind of bigger scale emergency. That plan now and that program has actually been running for a number of years quite successfully. And those volunteers who were linked in They help all year round now because they're part of the preparedness and resilience approach, you know, helping educate their own communities, their own family, their own friends and what might happen and what steps that they can actually take then to respond if it does occur. So initiatives like this are actually sparking off all the way around the country. New South Wales is kicking off something similar. The community of Scenic Grim, which is not too far away from where I am now, they've got a program called the um, CDV, so the Community Disaster Volunteers. So again, it's all based on communities who were isolated, felt helpless, and now want to do something about it. That sounds great. So your sort of message there is communities can learn from other communities and it can sort of build and expand across the country. You're not on your own. There's, there's people you can talk to. Yeah, absolutely. And then integrating into the formal emergency management arrangements because it's through those arrangements that we're able to, you know, call on people and agencies and resources for help. We can do better coordination so it's not haphazard with just like lots of random people and random groups turning up, well-meaning and wanting to help, but little or no coordination. And in that scenario, you can actually end up doing damage um, instead of helping people. Um, So we do need to see an expansion of the emergency management arrangements to reflect that very local level community-based response. Turning our attention, I guess, to, to the last 12 months uh, where we've particularly seen you know, uh, a lot of flooding and, and, and water in a lot of places. How did you find that? And particularly the situation where I think we had, you know, we had some communities that just as they started to do the cleanup, get back on their feet, they were hit again. How's the last sort of 12 months been uh, in those affected communities with, with water and flooding? 
Oh, it's been a shocker. It's one of these things that we tend to label as a, you know, compounding uh, events because I guess it's not just about flood water, it's what came before it. You know, we've had the bushfires, uh, we've had drought, we've had more drought, we've had floods, we've had more floods, more bushfires. And some of those communities, yeah, literally going through, being flooded out, losing nearly everything that they own and going through that distress going through all the hard graft of cleaning up, trying to piece their lives back together only to be flooded for another time. You know, that's soul-destroying. Um, and I guess the big challenge this time around is there's so many people in community who simply do not have the means to be able to recover themselves. They're either struggling for employment, they don't have insurance or they're underinsured, and they don't realize that they're underinsured till it actually comes time then to try and do their rebuild. So again, that's, I guess, another important part of the plan people need to think about. But it's getting back on their feet after an event like this. And I think the challenge is, you know, when the spotlight's on it and it's in the media and there's loads of stories about the flood and the recovery effort, then the attention's there and communities feel supported. But it's when the spotlight's turned off and then they're left there to continue to pick up the pieces, to try and get on with normal life. Like they still, some of them will have, you know, jobs to go to during the day and then they've got to go back and try and do the cleanup at night and then carry their family through that experience as well. So making sure that, I guess, any of the recovery supports that are put in place for these flood-affected communities, that it's quite holistic and that it's not just about, you know, the, the cleaning effort or the rebuild effort, but it's actually around the people involved in the process. Um, so how are people feeling? Um, how's their mental health, their physical health? How's their well-being? How are the kids doing? You know, one of the impacts that we often see on kids is they're not able to articulate their experience. They're not able to ask for help in the same way that an adult might be able to help them. So they actually rely on the adults in their life to be able to put some supports around and help them to make sense of what's happened. Um, so things like, you know, kids struggling to sleep, struggling to eat, struggling to engage back at school and just being fearful, you know, when it rains or when they see extra water lying around the place and not wanting to be separated from mom and dad. So things like co-sleeping again. So the likes of, you know, the floods that we've seen back to back to back, the ripple effect is quite significant um, for people's well-being. Um, but it's, it's, it's a whole of community response. It's a whole of country response that's needed yep. because it's on multiple levels, isn't it? It's the people, it's the buildings, infrastructure, employment, finance, etc. Yep, no, that, that's so true. And you, you mentioned it whilst we were talking about the floods and water of the last 12 months, but, you know, we're going to cast our mind back three or four years, sort of 2019, to, to, to the bushfires that, that hit Eastern Australia in particular, and Red Cross would have been heavily involved there. Is is a bushfire response different to, to the flooding response? Or And, you know, four or so years on from the bushfires, how are those communities recovering? Look, I think the response itself is reasonably similar as far as, you know, an emergency plan needs to be activated and agencies, entities and groups under that plan um, normally will respond and assist to whatever that event is. But the impact it has on communities is obviously very, very significantly different. Um, so with fires, bushfires, there's often total destruction. And it's destruction not of just individual buildings, but it's it's the environment. You know, you can have millions and millions of hectares of land, which um, during Black Summer, I think it was something like 12 million hectares, like really significant, and that was completely destroyed. It was flora and fauna, you know, completely destroyed. 
hundreds and thousands and millions of animals, etc., either injured or deceased during that event itself. So far is quite far um, reaching in its impact. Floods tend to be, you know, while they're widespread, they can be slightly more contained in their impact because if you get a flood, unless it goes right up to roof level, there may be parts of your buildings or structures and whole homes that won't be touched or impacted by it at all. Um, so it can be quite different. But then we look at floods and things like mold and the amount of mold that we've seen go through homes as the flood water dries out and then we've got humidity, etc. So they each have their own kind of unique dynamics to them. But I think what's common across all of them is the devastating impact it actually has on the people who are in the equation and how long it takes people to recover afterwards. From the Victorian bushfires in 2009, it was something like 2018 when the last families were resettled after that. Like that's nine whole years of recovery. And you know what? For some people, it could even be longer and we just don't know about that. And that's more the physical recovery. You know, there could be psychological, mental health impacts um, that live with those people um, into their futures as well. Yeah, we've spoken fire, we've spoken floods, but, you know, there's other sort of events that I'm sure Red Cross will be called upon. When we talk about water and, and too much water in parts of Australia over the last 12 months, but again, with those with those bushfires, it wasn't that long ago that parts of Australia were experiencing drought. And and again, you know, that, that is a disaster that I'm sure Red Cross will be called on and other services for support. Yeah, and you know what? Drought is just so cruel. It's one of those slow-moving disasters and it tends to fly under the radar till we reach that kind of crisis point. And we all know what's happening, but what we don't really understand is the tipping point uh, when it moves into something that had been managed but was having impact to now something that's really quite unmanageable and quite devastating. So from a Red Cross perspective, we undertook a program of support across a number of drought-affected communities and really saw the focus placed clearly on the well-being of individuals and families. I guess for a lot of families, isolation tends to be one of the silent impacts of drought where people feel like they're really alone with their struggles. And, you know, their full energy is just placed on surviving and trying to keep their family and their own business uh, afloat. Um, so providing opportunities to bring people together and to connect and draw support from others was one of the important strategies that we used when we were working with those communities. But also skilling up local community groups, neighborhood centers to provide some of the ongoing support and identify referral pathways for people in their communities who were struggling. So again, I guess there's a, a few prongs to it when you talk about it. But another aspect, I guess, of the drought was those farmers who then did end up moving away from community. And I don't think we realised or appreciated the breadth of local knowledge that sits with some of those farmers and landholders. And when they leave community, the gap and impact that that makes. So there's a lot of farmers out there and they know and understand the land and that delicate relationship between climate and survival. And in some of those regional and remote communities, it's these farmers and landowners who've actually been providing intelligence to emergency management agencies and councils on things like the behavior of rainfall, floodwaters, upstream, etc. And often these farmers are actually quite accurately able to predict the downstream consequences of large amounts of water moving through the river system. And in effect, they've been like the early warning system for many communities and towns downstream. So things like local knowledge, that, that's irreplaceable, you know, when, when these farmers have been stripped away from those communities. 
and and I guess it's also to do with the viability of the small regional and remote communities, uh, with those farmers and their families. You know, when they move away, often then it's questioning things like: Can the local school continue to operate? Can the businesses stay open? Can health services still be provided if the population has decreased so significantly? So when farmers leave the land, it does have far-reaching consequences. Yeah, there's a number of things there, as you said. There's not just a loss of the family, but then to the community, the loss of, and what does that mean for, for other business, but also that generational knowledge of the land and the area and what they've experienced over their time. So, yeah, it's it's far-reaching. And, and just as we look to wrap up, and we've talked a lot about floods and bushfires and the like and, and with the drought, but not, not, not all disasters come from natural rain events or bushfire events. Um, can you share some other sort of ex- experiences you've had in, in maybe non-weather-related disasters where you've been called on? As Red Cross, uh, we often work in and help out in events that tend to get labelled as a collective trauma event. So it tends to be an event that's not a natural disaster, but has high consequence in a community. So it could be things like we saw, you know, on the news over the last few months where we had the police shooting incident, you know, past Chinchilla, where unfortunately we had a number of lives um, that were lost. But we also had that um, helicopter incident out near SeaWorld, where again, lives lost, people injured. So with, with these types of events, they still need some form of a response. And often you'll have that first response where you have all the emergency services agencies literally trying to get the scene under control to save lives and to get people to further medical assistance as quick as they can. But then the other part of that, which often doesn't get spoken about, is that kind of psychological, again, mental health impact that it has on that wider community when they're caught up in these type of um, disasters. So with Red Cross, uh, we often uh, work discreetly with communities behind the scenes to help and support with things like psychological first aid. So it's really conversations around helping people understand what they've experienced, um, listening um, to their stories, but also where they need connecting them in, with, you know, supports and referrals, but also sharing with them some of the valuable kind of tools and resources that we've got, you know, from a Red Cross perspective. So on our website, we've got some great recovery tools. Other types of incidents that we've been involved in, and one that sticks to mind that I know I went down and assisted with as well, was the Burke Street Mall incident down in Victoria, where you had that vehicle driven down Burke Street, and again, a number of lives lost, people injured. But for most people in that scenario, it really put into question their sense of safety in that place. Um, So we had thousands of people who were actually impacted by what had occurred, even though they might not have seen it. But the fact that they work on that street, that they were walking down that street half an hour before the incident occurred with their children. And then they're asking the questions like, what if that had been me? If I had only been there 30 minutes later, that could have been my life or my family that was deceased. So people often have issues with, you know, dealing with guilt dealing with being a survivor of a situation like that and then wondering and trying to figure out what's normal, what should I be feeling right now, what's okay to feel, you know, that it is okay to feel upset, it is okay to feel angry, but it's then what you do with those feelings and emotions. But the other part of that is also, what about, again, the children in the equation. What do they see? What do they witness? Who's helping them to recover? So again, there's some really good resources, one in particular that we've got on our website called Helping, and children, Helping children and Young People Cope with Crisis. And it's a tool that parents or caregivers can actually use to 
navigate a conversation with their little ones uh, around making sense of these disasters, but also helps them understand what some of the warning signs are that shows that their little one might need a little bit of extra assistance as well. Well, there's some great examples there, and you, you, you jog my memory and thinking, you know, we, it's easy and you can see the natural, the, the weather disasters that we see, but, yeah, those other events and then the trauma they cause and therefore the support that needs to be provided to, as you said, perhaps a, a wide number of people. It's, it, it is staggering. Any final messages for, for our listeners about, you know, preparedness and, and having a bit of a plan? What what would you say uh, to, to, to our listeners? Firstly, look after yourself and your family. You know, there's a lot of stoicism in regional communities. People put their head down and bum up and just focus on getting the job done. Um, but you know what? If you break yourself or you break your family in the process then that can be really hard to bounce back from. So have a conversation and plan with your family and chat about what you will do if you are faced with a crisis and use resources like the Get Ready app and the Ready Plan and some of the really other great tools that are out there to assist you with that kind of planning process. Things like building up a support network around yourself. So whether it's family, friends, neighbours or local community groups or agencies, identify some people that you feel safe to reach out to if you need help where you can just talk without blame and shame and you know but the other part of it as well is looking at your own skills and abilities and figuring out what are the ways that you can actually help and be part of the solution so it's not about just receiving assistance it's how you can assist others so that piece about volunteerism is really really crucial so with Red Cross the majority of our workforce are volunteers and without them there's absolutely no way we could do what we do and it's the same with many community organizations out there so there might be plenty of people listening today you know thinking hey that's probably something that I could help with I could assist my community I know a lot I'm a really good planner I'm a really good thinker I'm quite resourceful and I'm really good in a crisis so if you are then maybe this is the opportunity for you to do that bit of reflection and think do I need to put my hand up? Do I need to step up? And do I need to become part of my community's solution for the future? Yeah, that's great advice. If people want more information, they can go to the Red Cross website and there'll be more information provided there. Absolutely, there will, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for your time today. Really fascinating and fantastic work you and your colleagues across the country do. So thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for joining me today for this special conversation with El Carter, National Emergency Response Lead for Australian Red Cross. Just like Australian Red Cross brings people and communities together in times of need and builds on community strengths, WFI Insurance has a long and proud history of helping agricultural communities identify and mitigate their risks, protecting Aussie farms for over 100 years. We're known for our personal approach and are part of the rural and regional communities in which we serve. So please join us again next time as we shake hands with more good people to know.